Wow, thank you, students. Wasn't that great? Just amazing. Thank you to our children, to our workers. I never cease to be amazed at what they're able to do and the gifting of these kids and uh, the way that they serve the Lord and they lead us all by example in worship. It's my delight tonight to um, think with you for a few moments about uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in a series on Sunday nights and we're studying each book of the Bible with, um, with a single sort of overview sermon. So we come tonight to 1 Corinthians, and uh, I'll be a good steward of your time tonight, and I appreciate your presence and your attention as we share in God's Word together. Up near Bonham, Texas, um, just about a stone's throw from the Red River, some of my ancestors uh, formed a community called Writings. Uh, named after my four great-grandfather Calvin Ridings. He and his wife, Sarah Kennedy Ridings, settled there with their sons and daughters. And, um, and over time, they established a church in that town. But, but it's a different kind of church. Most of those towns you go to, the, the church is named for the town. So you would expect a community called Ridings to have Ridings Baptist Church or First Baptist Church of Ridings. But in this case, uh, the name of the church is the Corinth Baptist Church. And I remember the first time I saw that, I thought, that's an unusual name to choose to name your church. I mean, I would be less surprised if they had called it Philippi, the Philippian uh, Baptist Church, or the Berean Baptist Church, or the Antioch Baptist Church. Any of those churches in Scripture has a more positive reputation than Corinth. So it's almost as if if you chose Corinth, and I don't know why they did, that, that maybe you anticipated trouble. What I do know from our family's history as I had the chance one time to read the minutes of that church from way back in the 19th century is that my three great-grandfather, Alfred Lafayette Writings, who helped found the church, was very instrumental in founding it. And then eventually in the record, it says they threw him out of the church for the crime of dancing. And uh, he repented of that. And so they forgave him and they reinstated him because churches ought to forgive and uh, redeem. But alas, he danced again. And I don't know if they took him back again. I'm not sure. But all these things came through my mind last night as I was watching the McTaggart uh, Irish dancers last night in the church and just thinking about how far we've come on this particular issue. I bet they meant something different by dancing than what those young ladies were doing last night and our children this evening who are glorifying God or last night the Lord of the dance so why Corinth? And what do we know about the church in Corinth? Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I want to read the end of that first chapter, the beginning of the second, and then another reference from chapter 15. So you might mark that uh, in your Bibles as we share together in God's Word. Would you stand with me in reverence for our God and His Word tonight and hear the Word of the Lord? 1 Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 26, where Paul writes, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. 
It's because of Him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And then in chapter 15, verse 3, we read these words. Paul writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And then finally, one last verse, verse 58 of chapter 15 says, Therefore, 1558, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When Paul entered the city of Corinth, we can imagine him coming on the heels of his, of his experience in the city of Athens, where he had tried to engage the intelligentsia. Think about ancient Greek culture as a culture that treasured and honored wisdom. Remember, they, they're the ones who gave us Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and they understood something of wisdom, and they prided themselves in their superior wisdom and their knowledge. But somehow, all of that which they had come to know had not changed positively the way they lived. So in fact, the city of Corinth, where, where Paul entered after he left Athens, was a, a place that was known for its immorality. They were famous for their licentiousness and their liberal living. And in that city, though they had great wisdom, they also were very immoral. It was a place that, that was known for heavy use of alcohol. There was rampant idolatry. There was great immorality. And Paul came to that city, and on the heels of trying to engage the intelligentsia of Athens, he came to Corinth with a different strategy. Instead of saying, I'll be as smart as the smartest of them, I'll impress them by quoting their poets and by referencing their religious statues. Instead, this time, Paul said, I know one thing. I know Jesus Christ and that He was crucified 
and I am going to preach Jesus Christ. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, for a year and a half, Paul preached in that city, and it was a transforming experience. When he first got there, he engages with Priscilla and Aquila, and they make tents together. But eventually, Silas and Timothy come, and apparently they help out with the financial support so that Paul can give himself completely single-mindedly to teaching the people in that city about Jesus Christ. And as was his custom, he started in the synagogue, ministered to the Jewish people. But there came a, a moment when they didn't want to hear what he said. Oh, there were some who did, and those became followers of Christ. But eventually there was a, a critical moment, and Paul said, okay, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he preached to the people who did not have his same spiritual heritage. Now imagine him establishing a church, preaching the gospel for 18 months, and then heading down the road eventually to Ephesus and leaving these new believers. None of them had been believers for longer than 18 months and saying, now what I taught you for these 18 months, put this into practice. And there came a moment when Paul heard news from that church, from a family in that church, and the news was not good news, that what he had established was falling apart. And there is nothing more painful for a pastor than to hear that a place where he formerly ministered is now no longer faithful to the gospel. And so Paul engaged in a, a series of letters with the people of Corinth. And they corresponded with him, and he corresponded with them. And these first 16 chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians represent Paul's initial correspondence with him. And he just begins by saying, remember who you were before I came. It wasn't that you were the most wise and influential people in the city. You weren't the wealthiest people. You weren't the most educated or the most cultured people. But when you came to know Jesus Christ, he became for you wisdom from God so that you had holiness and righteousness and redemption. And Paul urges them in a series of issues that he knows about, he urges them to turn back to the initial gospel which they heard. He wants them to come back to their belief in Jesus Christ because he knows that for them, and may I say for us, that knowledge of Jesus Christ is enough. And when I think about these children who sang tonight and my own kids, I, I realize that in our culture, especially in this part of Houston, there's a great emphasis on education. And somehow in the back of our minds, we're convinced if our kids can just get into the best schools, if they can just have the, the best SATs and ACTs and get into the best schools, then, then maybe they'll do well with their, their grades and get a 4.0 and eventually they'll they'll come to the place where they do well on their GRE or their, or their GMAT or their LSAT or their MCAT, and then they'll get a, a great degree from a great university, and they'll have a great job, and life will be good. But in fact, history tells us that some of the most educated cultures were also some of the most immoral cultures. In fact, education, as important as it is, and, and my life story is a deep devotion to, to education. Eleven years after I got out of high school, I had formal uh, education. And, and so I, it's very important, but can I just say something to you, that, that if our kids got all the degrees in the world, but didn't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, 
it would not go well with them here. And it would not go well with them in eternity. So Paul's challenge to the church at Corinth is my challenge to you that because we know Jesus Christ, we ought to be holy. Because we know Jesus Christ, we ought to be righteous. Because we know Jesus Christ, we ought to be united. Because we know Jesus Christ, we ought to be loving in our relationships with each other. And to have Jesus Christ, Paul said, to know the truth of the gospel is not just to make a one-moment decision and to walk through water and then live however you want to. No, for Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ affected everything in life. The way we relate to other people. The way we deal with marriage. The way we focus on morality. The way we look at lawsuits. The way we, we think about love and spiritual gifts, the way we think about the resurrection. So Paul gives them ultimately this irreducible minimum of the gospel. I know you've, you've perhaps thought, if I just knew the whole Bible, then everything would be well. The good news of the gospel is we can start very simply as Paul did with this truth. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. And Christ appeared to people. And if we could infuse that knowledge into our own lives, into the lives of our children, we would understand that that relationship that results from that personal knowledge of Jesus Christ affects everything in our lives. So for instance, it affects the way that we relate to other people. So in the first four chapters, Paul talks about how knowing Jesus Christ means that we don't divide up in the body of Christ. We don't divide the church because in the church at Corinth, they had chosen teams and there were cliques and some said, well, I follow Paul and others said, I follow Peter and others said, I follow Apollos and still others said, a pox on all your houses, I follow Jesus. I'm a true Christian. And the Apostle Paul said, the thing you have to know about Christ is that he was not divided. Christ is not divided. And to know Him is to know that we are not to sort of choose teams and denigrate other people and live at odds with other people in relationships and always be angry and frustrated and contentious and quarreling because Christ is enough for us. Michael Hart has done a study of the 100 most influential people in history. It's interesting, he, the people he chooses. Sigmund Freud he chooses because of his impact on psychology. He chooses Louis Pasteur because of his influence on biology and, and modern medicine. He chooses Isaac Newton, but he has the, the chutzpah to uh, rank them in order. And you'll be pleased to know that Jesus made the top 100 for Michael Hart. But you'll be displeased, perhaps, as I was, to understand that, that he came in third. <laughs> he, he came in just, just behind um, Muhammad and Sir Isaac Newton, who, by the way, was a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. And when I read that, I thought, Jesus Christ, on any list that I can imagine, is at the top of the list. The confession of Christians is that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again and appeared to people. And anybody who came forth from the grave can only be titled by everybody who knows him as Lord. 
He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and He is Lord. And to say that Jesus is Lord means that we don't choose teams in the church and say, well, I follow this religious leader or this pastor or this spiritual leader. But no, we are all followers of Jesus Christ, and Christ is not divided, so we should not be divided. And through the years, I've noticed that churches will divide over most anything. One friend of mine had the misfortune of pastoring a little church down the road where they had an argument over playing dominoes in the fellowship hall. And they were going to have a big split over it. My friend appealed to them. There were only 15 of them. He said, please, please don't. This is not worth stirring up a hornet's nest. And his chairman of deacons said, I think it is. And so there were two churches, one with seven and one with eight. And they divided. There was one church that divided over... um, the ladies who had to leave the service early because they were peeling the potatoes in the kitchen for the fellowship. And, and some said, we need a really good potato peeler so that those ladies don't have to do that, a, a machine that will do that for us. And, and the others said, no, we think we should be able to fellowship while we peel the potatoes. We've always enjoyed that. And they divided the pro-potato peeler party and the anti-potato peeler party. And we hear Paul say to know Christ is to know unity. Christ doesn't divide us. Christ brings us together. They had a problem with immorality in the church. Somebody has said that in the ancient world, Rome would correspond to Washington, D.C. Ephesus, anybody know, would correspond probably to New York City. What would Corinth be? As best I can tell reading this letter and what I've read about Corinth, it would be sort of like Las Vegas, You know, Las Vegas, where um, there are even commercials that say, if you go there, then there's a code. You can't tell what anybody else did there. And one guy says, I turned my friend in because he told on us for what we did. As though there's any place on this earth that you can go and do whatever you want to, and nobody has a right to know. As if there's any place in the world like that. And Paul was not surprised that there was immorality in Corinth. He had lived there long enough to see it. You know what surprised Paul, chapter 5? There was immorality in the church. A man who was living with his father's wife. Paul said even the pagans wouldn't do that. So here's what you do. Act like I'm there with you. I can't be with you, but here's what you do. You call him to repentance. And if he won't repent, place him outside the church until he does repent. Exercise church discipline until he learns to do right. And in our day and age, we would say, well, well, nobody has the right to judge anybody. But Paul says, we're going to judge angels someday. Surely, in a loving spirit, we can discipline those within the body. I was, um, I was the uh, example of church discipline in a church years ago when I was a seventh grader. I had a bit of an issue With my vocabulary at the local junior high, I said things I shouldn't say. There were two girls in our youth group who decided they would no longer speak to me, kind of like that girl on the commercial who said, I'm practicing the silent treatment with you. Well, they didn't say anything to me for days. And eventually it got my attention and I repented and I asked God to change the way I spoke and God took away that vocabulary, that language from me. But it came from the loving discipline of two sisters in Christ whose opinion I value. By the way, one of them has a daughter who's a freshman at Washita with Chase, my son. So it's sort of generation comes down to generation, and we see them when we're up there. Um, her husband is a pastor, and she and I grew up kind of like brother and sister, and it's amazing to see how God worked in my life and, uh, and just the way that their, their loving discipline called me back 
we'll see in 2 Corinthians next week that um, Paul says there comes a moment when we restore the one who has been disciplined by the church. They had other issues in the church. Um, One man was taking another man to court, and these were unbelievers uh, who were the judges, and these believers were mad at each other. Instead of working it out in the church, they went before a a pagan court, and a non-Christian judge was making a decision, a judgment between two believers. And Paul says, it would be better for you to lose the money than to bring reproach on the name of Christ by letting a pagan judge have to decide between two believers who have the mind of Christ, he says at the end of chapter 2. You mean you can't figure this out, Paul says? Now, Paul's not saying that that laws aren't important or that Christians never uh, have to be protected by the law. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, in the body of Christ, we don't take each other to court because when we do, we bring reproach on the name of Christ. And Paul says it'd be better for us to be defrauded. You say, but, but if I don't take that person to court, if I don't take this fellow Christian to court, I might lose money. And Paul says it'd be better to lose money than to lose face in the non-Christian community and show that Christ can't really transform us in ways that help us to get along with each other. Paul continues in this uh, letter to the Corinthians to challenge them related to marriage. I just saw an interesting statistic recently. They asked 100 couples who were cohabiting why they wouldn't get married. And this is what they said. We are living together because we're afraid we can't do marriage right and we would end up getting a divorce. And I was just sort of shocked when I read that. And I wondered, what is the ethic? And then I thought, I thought about our church where at one point, I don't know what the count is today, where we had 100 couples in the church who'd been married for over 50 years. We've got a generation of kids who've come up in a sort of unstable family uh, system where divorce is so rampant that kids say, you know what, I think I would fail anyway, so it'd be easier just not to get married. And, and the church must... The church must live what we say we believe. And I thank God when I see you who have been married and have stayed together and loved each other for a lifetime, my heart rejoices in that. I love for my kids to see that and to say, so marriage can last for a lifetime. This is the Christian ethic. And Paul writes about it. He says, if you're single, you don't have to get married. Uh, You can just as Paul did, just walk with the Lord. But if you want to get married, that's okay, he says. But we never know when the Lord's going to return, and we ought to focus on the Lord's work above everything else. In chapter 8, he talks about meat offered to idols, and we think, what in the world does that have to do with us? But listen to the principle. He says, you know, idols really aren't anything. There's only one God. There aren't many gods. There's just one God. But if somebody used to be an idolater, and they see you, a Christian, eating meat that you know was offered to an idol, that may hurt their conscience in some way that causes them to stumble. And you are responsible for your brother and sister in Christ not to make them stumble. I bet you can think of an issue like this as well that's neither right nor wrong, but the way we handle it might harm a brother or sister in Christ. And in answer to uh, Cain's question, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. And Paul's final word is, he said, I can eat meat. If I go to a market and I buy meat, Paul says, I don't ask whether it's been offered to an idol. Um, They they would offer the meat to the idols. But the funny thing about the idols was they never ate the meat. Can you imagine that? 
And so they had to do something with it, so they sold it in the marketplace. And Paul said, I can go buy meat in the marketplace, buy a T-bone or a porterhouse or a filet mignon. I can go buy it, and I don't have any problem with it because I don't even ask him if they offered it to an idol. But he said, it could be that somebody came out of that idolatry and they see that and it causes them to stumble. So it, it violates their conscience and they do something that's wrong for them. And as a result, I, I bear responsibility. So Paul said, if eating meat offered to an idol causes my brother or sister to stumble, I will eat no meat while the world stands. How does that affect your view of social issues? How does that affect your view. Can I just tell you as a regent of a, a university in our state that the greatest issue facing our college students today is the use of alcohol, underage use of alcohol. I just saw a story this week about young people who said alcohol has become our excuse because when we drink alcohol, we do things we shouldn't do, but we can always say, well, I only did that because I was drunk. I only missed that class because I was drunk. I only became involved in that immorality because I was drunk. And it becomes an excuse that lets them off the hook. And I just want to say to you, if drinking alcohol causes one of our young people to stumble, then it's easy for me to say, I will drink no alcohol while the world stands. I can't say how the Lord's leading you on that. I can just tell you where I stand on that because I've seen the struggles and I've seen the disruption in the lives of of families and kids. He goes on to talk about our freedom in Christ and the people are saying, but we have rights. And Paul says, if anybody has rights, chapters 9 to 11, Paul says, I have rights, but I give up all my rights. He says, I've become all things to all men. I've become weak to those who are weak, strong to those who are strong. Why? Because I want to reach them if I can so that somebody can be saved. In chapters 12 to 14, he talks about spiritual gifts because the people in Corinth were very interested in spiritual gifts. But they exalted speaking in tongues as the primary gift, as the best gift. And those who could do it said, we've got a gift that the rest of you don't have. And it's so sensational and spectacular. We're better than you as Christians. And Paul said, that's really silly. Because when you speak in tongues, people can't even understand you. You'd have to have an interpreter to be understood. And Paul said, I'd rather speak five words that people can understand than 10,000 words that people don't understand. And Paul said, what if an unbeliever comes among you? If they heard the gospel preached... They might stand convicted and their souls might be bared before God and they might say, God is among you. In other words, our worship has evangelistic implications. The way we worship, the way we sing, the way we pray, the way we preach and the way we listen says to those around us, either God is real or he's not. Is he real in this family? If an unbeliever walked in, would they say, God is among you? Or would they say, ah, oh, there's not much to that. Let the way we worship express the depth of our faith. In chapter 15, he comes to them and says, it's come to my attention that some of you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. See, that was the problem in Athens. They were listening to him preach on Mars Hill till he said Jesus was raised from the dead. And then they sneered at him. Preachers like for people to laugh with us, but not so much to laugh at us. And they were laughing at Paul. Because the, the Greek culture was that the body is evil and the spirit is good. There was a dualism there. There's a little bit of that in our world today. And so they, they said that the body's evil. So if the body dies and it's corrupted, that body can never live again. And this was a stumbling point intellectually for some of the Greek philosophers and wise people. But Paul said, what, is, what sounds foolish to the wise, God has made the wisdom 
the best wisdom of all, that Christ who died has risen from the dead and that He has appeared to others. So this is really real. And Paul goes on to say this affects everything. This affects the way we live because we too will rise. We will be raised from the dead, Paul says. And he comes to this remarkable conclusion where he says, you know, as we serve the Lord together, we are a church that is, is holy because our God is holy, is unified because our God is one. We are a church that is loving because our God is loving. And in chapter 13, in the middle of that discussion of the gifts, he just simply says, if I had the greatest spiritual gifts in the world but didn't have love, I, I would be nothing. It, w- it would be worth nothing at all. I heard about a man out in Katy named Dennis who... Uh, made national news. He went to a dry cleaner, one-hour dry cleaning. He had postponed, delayed, procrastinated, but he needed the dry cleaning back that day because he was leaving on a trip the next morning early. And so maybe you've done this. He turned in his dry cleaning, and, and she said, when do you need it? And he said, well, I need it later today. And she said, well, I won't have it ready till Thursday. And he said, but your, your sign says um, one-hour dry cleaning. And she said, that's just the name of the store. That's not what we do. You can't have it till Thursday. Well, Paul says the name of our store is love. Is it true? Are we loving? I don't, I don't, I don't care what the people of this community um, say about Tallowood uh, except this. I want them to know that this is a place that love built, where for 50 years people have loved each other, have loved um, followers of Christ, and have loved sinners until they became followers of Christ. Love is not just our name, it's our identity, it's who we are. And Paul says at the end of his discussion of the resurrection in, in, in verse 58 there of chapter 15, he says, therefore, since we believe Christ rose from the dead, since we believe that, he says, therefore, stand firm. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Just this week, I I read uh, about a man who said, always give 100% at your work. Give 12% on Monday, 33% on Tuesday, 40% on Wednesday, 20% on Thursday, and 5% on Friday. But Paul says, when you're working for the Lord, you, 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 you give all of your all, all the time. Why? Because he gave all of his all. Here's the irreducible minimum of the gospel that will change the way you live. If you believe that Jesus Christ lived and that he died and that he was buried and that he rose again and that he appeared to people. And Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me like I was born out of time. He met me on the road to Damascus. If you have met Jesus Christ, then let that knowledge and that wisdom inform the way you live your life. So that everybody who knows you, even if they don't know how much you know, knows this about you, that you know Christ and that knowing Christ has changed your whole life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the knowledge of Christ that changes our lives. And I pray, God, tonight that you would help us to live what we say we believe That, Lord, it really is who we know. It's not what we know, but who we know. And we know you. And knowing you changes the way we relate to other people. The way we relate to each other. The way we relate to our world. God, make it so. Make us holy because you are holy. Make us one because you are one. 
Make us loving because you are love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.